Welcome to the Open Door Podcast. My name is Anthony. This is a conversation with Carl Yip. He is only 18 years old and he took part in the 2019 BBC Young Reporters Competition where his journalism was broadcasted on BBC Radio 5. After sixth form, he has his eye on studying politics and philosophy next at Cardiff University, developing the vital skills and gaining invaluable experiences to start a political career as well as one in journalism. In this episode, We explore these two areas, as well as his thoughts on his cultural identity and heritage of Hong Kong Chinese. This is the first time I filmed our conversation, so please check it out on YouTube as well. As usual, the timestamps are in the description, and without further delay, this is Carl Yip. So in 2019... Uh, you won the BBC reporting competition. And yes. for the report, what did you do for the report for that competition? Um, so the report was more of an analysis on and questioning why there were so few Chinese or Oriental people in Parliament as like MPs and in general media as well, just in general, like in like the news and just in any kind of television kind of view. And... Looking at it, not so much as sort of if it, whether it's race or not, but looking at it more of a cultural issue rather than a societal kind of barrier. And you, yeah. you interviewed your parents and your grandparents for that report. Yeah, I interviewed my my grand from my dad's side, and then my mom and my dad. Yeah, were they quite reluctant to take part, or were they quite happy to? My dad was a little bit hesitant, I think, initially, but he was completely fine with it. Um, my grand didn't really know what was going on. We kind of said, yeah, can we just ask you this question and record it? And she didn't really know what was going on. So she kind of just played along. <laughs> My mum was very upfront with it. She was fine with it. Yeah. The, the thing I found incredibly sort of heartwarming to hear was how supportive your parents were for your, for your yes. uh, career aspects. Because you want to be a journalist and a politician. Or is it and or situation? And or. So it's like, maybe I'll go into politics. Initially, I wanted to go straight into politics but I was kind of thinking, I actually quite like writing and doing like, just journalism type role. So maybe I'll do that. And then maybe later down in the line, go into more deep, deeper dive into politics. But like my journalism aspect will be more focused around the political world, I think, anyway, because it's, it's just something I'm very interested in. Yes. It's normally the case, you know, many, I wouldn't say many, but some, especially Boris Johnson, he was a sort of a stop, slash politician journalist before and then he became... You know, yeah. he, moved, he moved up and do you sort of have a plan as to how your career would go, like a detailed plan or do you just have a sort of vague direction of where you want to go? So journalism and, um, and At the moment, it's a very vague kind of pathway. I think I've got more of a detailed route with journalism because I think it's easier to kind of plan that one out. Whereas with, I think politics, there's a lot more, there's a lot more detail to go into it. I was thinking of like joy, like, joining one of the parties, like signing up, but then it cost £15. I was like, nah. <laughs> you said you said you had a detailed, a more detailed plan for journalism. Would you mind like laying yeah. it out for us? What's your, what's your plan? Yeah, so obviously with the, the writers' competition, the, the journalism competition, it kind of opened a few doors. Um, like for example, I was able to get, I'm looking to maybe get like a work experience with the BBC initially before I go to uni. And then when I go to university, I'm going to do politics of philosophy. And then from there, 
because it works quite nicely because if I go um, I'm aiming to get to Cardiff University and where that's situated it's very close to the BBC building so I'm looking to try and like wheedle my way in that way um, doing internships and anything really to just get my foot in because I think that's the main thing with journalism it's like you just have to just go full in with it exactly yeah it's not about what you say you can do it's about showing what you can do through writing and through projects of your own accord and yeah showing potential editors what you what you're capable of yeah that's really good yeah so you're you're going into trying to go to Cardiff University to do politics yeah but you're yeah. not doing politics for a level at the moment no can no you, can you explain that sort of decision was it on purpose or did um, it just happen this it, way it was a little it was mostly on purpose yeah because for GCSE I did Asian history and then I was looking to do it for A-level, but you can't do A-level a Asian history alongside A-level geog uh, geography, politics. So I was like, do I carry and do something that I would enjoy or do, carry and, or do something completely new? Because at the time, I was considering doing Asian history at university as well. So I kind of decided I'll do Asian history. And then if I don't do that at university, at least I've done it as an A-level and like, learnt it at a more deeper level than GCSE and then move on to politics and philosophy later at university with kind of like a more fresh perspective. Do you see any political relationships with ancient history and politics that you're going to do at university? So is there any sort of transferable knowledge that you can bring or would you have to sort um, of intellectually prepare for politics as a separate thing for university? I think there's definitely... Um, aspects you can cross over because I think when you're looking at history you're always going to end up looking at politics because that that's how societies like, are developed they're developed around politics so when you're looking at uh, ancient history when you're looking at the the Greeks and how they interacted with each other the different uh, political systems that they ran it very much correlates with modern times still like it's almost as if nothing really changes just it develops but the base, the foundations are all the same, which you see in ancient history, obviously, because it's where it all starts. So I think there's definitely things that you can take over from ancient history to politics, because it, it's always going to be there, yeah. I think. Would it, would it be fair to say that studying ancient history, you get to know the development of history and how politics changes throughout the time and yeah, how, definitely, how, mod definitely. how modern politics compares to ancient politics and you can sort of see similarities and differences would you agree with that yeah def definitely there's there's even from today there's still similarities to like governments from ancient times or, um but it'd be, you, you see the progression of how like oh you you look at for example athens and how they ran their um their state and you can see how we, from a modern society, have taken aspects of that and then just developed upon it and made it fit us, our needs and what we desire for a society. There's definitely similarities you can draw from it. Because you're not doing politics for A-level, but what else are you trying to do to prepare, mentally prepare for the course at Cardiff University when you get in? What, what are you doing right now to prepare for it? I, I do always keep up to date with the news and I read a lot, so I... I I've read some books, not loads yet, because they're quite hard to find like decent ones. But I've read like a few books. Like, to be fair, a lot of history books tend to like have a lot of politics in it. It kind of helps. And then even just watching YouTube videos and listening to podcasts about P 
people's views on politics is I think is always quite beneficial. Yeah, I think so too. I think it's good also to sort of burst your own echo chamber as well. So break down your own echo chamber and try to try to actively seek things that um, oppose your own view. I think that's a good way to not just develop as you know a well-rounded journalist, but also develop yourself as a you know well-rounded as person. A person. Yeah, yeah, I think definitely. that's very important, especially for a politician too. You should always um, see things from the other side and try to try to try to do that. Let's take it in turns. What do you think makes a good journalist, and then what what makes you what makes you think is a good um, politician? Let's do journalists first. Yeah, I think with a with journalists, they have to almost they have to take themselves out of the situation and try and be as fair with the stories that they're portraying showing both sides, trying to be open-minded, not trying to guide. Well, it depends on the piece. If it's just a factual news article, you want to, they, you don't want to guide the reader to think that in a certain, to have a, take a certain position of the story. You just want to be able to just give a detailed information. Uh, of course, if it's an opinion article, obviously you'd be able to persuade your audience to come to terms and accept your view. And I think... Yeah, there's definitely, it's definitely, from a writing perspective, a journalist has to be quite careful, I think. And then uh, gathering knowledge, it's like they have to, like, gathering the information to be, you know, an- analyze your sources, um, verify them, get a varied amount. Yeah. I, wanna, I just want to pick up that keyword, careful. Uh, journalists have to be careful. What do you mean by careful? Can you explain your. Because journalists, in general, like when you listen to the news, you generally trust what they're saying. So. When I say careful, it's almost as if you want to be mindful of what kind of perception you're trying to portray. Because, say, you're presenting one group of people very negatively, then the wider public will most likely follow suit. And it could be damaging to certain people. And that's not, that's not the fault of the public. It's more of the journalists, because that's what they're portraying and presenting to the, the wider population, I think. Yeah. So... so there's a, you have to have a sort of a consequential mindset, you know, you're, yeah, you're, you know, as they say, you know, words are just as powerful as, uh, or more powerful than the sword, you know, so. Yeah, I think. I'd say they're more powerful in a sense, because people remember words. <laughs> yeah, and, and words change history, and words changed the whole direction of, of, of the world and, you know, the philosophy of the world. So definitely words are very powerful. Does that put a lot of pressure on you? to to sort of be more knowledgeable and be ever so curious about things and make sure that your position is right and strong yeah it definitely makes me well it definitely make, uh, drives me to strive for a more open view so even if i may disagree with someone's opinion i still want to hear it so then i can try and understand their perspective and see why they have that view and put that and understand that and incorporate that into my own kind of knowledge of a certain situation yeah a lot of people say that you know a world full of so many different opinions especially opposing ones are is what makes life interesting you know who who would yeah. want to live in yeah. a world where everyone agrees with each other if we've got the same views uh, it's way more interesting hearing other people's perceptions exactly. of certain things yeah and politician do many of the those characteristics that you mentioned for journalists does that transfer over to the politician, or do you think? I would, I would think so, because again, they are very much in the public eye. So whatever they say, they have to be held accountable for, and also know what the consequences of those words can have. 
not just to like the people of the country, but like for the wider world, because a politician isn't just, they're not just seen by one, like one group of people, they're seen by the whole world. So it's maybe like a journalist, but dialed up to 11. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, mean, I mean, journalists, you know, they, they don't receive as much scrutiny from multiple editors of magazines and, and you know, every word and every action picked apart by several national newspapers, international newspapers. Same again with the question of journalism, the pressure of choosing the right words. Does that pressure also worry you in some respects of being a politician? Def- definitely, definitely, because it's, it's cliche to say, but we are just human. So you always are going to end up saying something wrong. So trying to work out what those consequences can be and how extreme they are are quite scary to think about. Because like you said, it's not just one editor scrutinising you, it's like, several different national, international uh, magazines and news news stations all firing at you. Yep. Yeah, it's, it is quite worrying. And don't forget the major one, the opposition, who I tried to, whose, yeah, whose sole yeah. purpose is to try to take you down and kick you out of office. Yeah, right in front of your face as well. It is quite, I think it's a very difficult position to be in, to be at the firing end for just trying to do your job and doing the right thing is quite difficult because as obviously with the politi- as a politician it's not just you you have to make this, this the decision as a collective with the rest of the party so if you have a view that's different or you have a plan that's different not only are you being opposed by obviously the opposition who are supposed to oppose you but also the people who are supposed to support you i can imagine it being quite stressful yeah <laughs> to put it lightly i i can't remember which um prime minister it was but it was a story he was recounting in a memoir and he would say that before each pmq prime minister questions he would he would be so nervous he would throw up before every pmq because you know at pmq you don't you have no idea what's going to be thrown at you so you just have to be prepared as as much as possible and, and also it's televised so i can't imagine you can't slip up yeah you can't slip up I mean, so flexible and agile in your rhetoric and argument. I, I just cannot imagine myself dealing with that sort of pressure. You, you said you planned journalism in a very detailed way. Well, well, more detailed relatively to the politics career. Do you think your, it's a priority to sort of hone in on that scale of rhetoric in politics and try to be convincing in your speech? What, what's your opinion on this? Yeah. Definitely, because at the end of the day, speeches and talking to the mass public is a key role in that job. So you have to be good at it. And you have to be able to, obviously, like you said, to be able to think on your feet, be, be able to answer any sort of question and to be able to like handle criticism at that specific time and to deal with that and use and, and still portray your argument and your position on, on, a, on a, a situation. So... Yeah, definitely. You you have to hone those skills, and that may take like years. Because also, I think it's experience as well. You have to be doing it as well to even get a glimpse of what it has, what you have to do. Yeah, I can't imagine there'll ever be a time where you just sort of get used to it and immune to the pressure. I don't think this. <laughs> yeah, personally no, speaking, I, I don't think that's possible. Um, you're always going to be no. terrified. No, I I get scared when I'm hanging out. I get a bit anxious when I'm just hanging out with a group of friends. Like, I know these people, but because it's a group, you're just like a little bit anxious all the time. To the television audience, it'd be 
terrifying. <laughs> do, you, do you mean when you're with a group of fan, friends, anxious just being around them or anxious sort of talking to the group and sort of explaining um, yourself? Yeah, definitely anxious talking to the group mostly because even though I can be quite extroverted, I mean, I can be quite quiet because I'm always thinking about what to say. <laughs> Have you thought about debating societies at Cardiff University? Because I know there is one. Yeah, that would be something I would look into because I do quite like debating. It is quite fun because, yeah, I think that in a sense that would that would also help build up skills for those types of roles. So After talking for a few minutes I, and sort of hearing your, your views on the similarities and differences, I'm starting to see there's a relation between sort of a symbiotic relationship between being a politician, a, a good you know, speaker and a good writer. My, my favorite journalist and writer, who's also a debater, Christopher Hitchens, in one interview with Brian Lamb for C-SPAN in America, he was asked a question, I can't, I can't remember what the question was, but he was asked something about writing. And he said that in order to be a good writer, a fantastic writer, a writer that holds people's attention is to be a good speaker. He asks his students, you know, can, if you can speak, you can write. Can you speak? Do people listen to you when you speak? Do your friends stop what they're doing just to hear what you have to say? And then when students try, they realize it's quite hard to do that, to be a good speaker, to command your audience's attention. Do you think that's the case? To be a good writer, you have to be a good speaker. I think definitely, especially doing English at A level, you realize how similar your writing can be to how you speak. And also vice versa, they can be very different than uh, with each other depending on situations. Because uh, you learn that there are different modes of language. You have writing, speaking and blended. So obviously writing is what you're writing, speaking is what you're speaking, blended is like the combination of two. So you see that mostly with like text and some, sometimes some news articles. And you kind of see how the words that you use can be very similar when it's a more formal presentation. Because I think when you're, write, when you're writing and speaking, if you're trying to speak to hold a room and to hold an audience, you have to be able to intricately think of the words to say that will keep them in, engaged and intrigued. And if you have that skill in speaking and be able to do it on spontaneously, it just makes it so much easier when you're writing it. So you're not thinking so much like, oh, how do I... How do I make this sound interesting? Because you'd be there just kind of quickly going through it because you're able to do it spontaneously. How, how does that skill come about? Is it, is it just more experience and finding more occasions to do that? Or does that only come from uh, reading and then you can sort of imitate that style? What do you think um, the order I is? I think it's just a, a, a combination of all of them. I think from like doing English at A-level, Definitely like writing because we do stuff, we have done things where like you write speeches and that helps you kind of like think of what kind of, what kind of vocabulary you should use and what um, language levels and structures you should use to try and engage that audience and portray your view, not as in a short amount of time with as few lines as you want, because you want to be able to be able to talk uh, about several different things at the same, in, in a certain time frame. So I think learning to write speeches is definitely somewhere to start. And then obviously it's putting yourself out there and having a go at it. I think, I think that type of stuff is something you just have to jump into because you can't creep into it. You just have to be put there and maybe fail the first time and the second time and the third time until it starts k 
kicking in. I think it's more of an experience and time thing. For yeah, yeah, I totally agree. Has anyone ever judged you negatively for wanting to be a journalist or a politician? I don't think so. People have warned me about being going into politics, but I think just because politics is just a, it's a very risky place to go into because you're always going to get people to hate you uh, or to dislike you. And especially being an ethnic minority and being Chinese, I can already imagine some of the things that they might say. And people have warned me about what these things that people might say, but at the end of the day, they're just people that you will never meet. You can't let it hold you back, I think. Who were these people? Were they friends or strangers or classmates? Or? Yeah, some of them were friends, um, family members sometimes. Um, my grand, quite funnily, in, in that BBC art, um, reporters competition said it's not a real job. I found that very funny. And my parents have obviously raised concerns, like just more like being, rare, being aware of what can happen. So there's never anything to say you shouldn't do it, but it's being but trying to tell me to be conscious and aware of what will happen as a result of going down that field. Yeah, I, I listened to the report as well, and there was a you know, smile on my face when your grandmother said it wasn't a real job. Um, yeah. Uh, which is uh, interesting. I want to just explore that. What, why did you find it funny when your grandmother said that? Because it, it, it just kind of just perfectly fit my whole argument that the reason you don't see Oriental people in general in any form of media is because there's this view that you have to be proper jobs are doctors, lawyers, you know, the classic kind of accountants even, and those kind of classic roles which are sustainable, good pay and, and safe jobs. Um, and also quite inter- you have to be quite intellectual for it, which they just love. They love a smart <laughs> child. <laughs> And also uh, status as well. Yeah, definitely. And to compete with the rest of the family, say, oh, look, my kid's a doctor doing this. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. do you think it's your grandmother just means that? You know, your grandmother has that traditional um, mindset. That... I think so. And also, I think there's this kind of consensus. I think, especially with Chinese people, we stay away from politics, I think. There's this, my mum was telling me this, this old, I can't remember how quite how it goes, but it goes something along the lines of um, a bird doesn't get shot if it doesn't raise its head or fly away from a field. So it's kind of like, if you don't, if you ignore it, if you don't look at it, if you don't go into that kind of thing, you don't put yourself out there, you're never going to get hurt. So it's almost a fear aspect, I think, as well. And that kind of like mentality that you don't want to put yourself out there because you don't want to face that kind of criticism and attack. Having been told that by your own mum, you know, what still spurs you to, to try and aspire for it? Um, what is it about politics that keeps you striving for it? For me, politics is it's like it's the most upfront way of making positive change. I think, and I think, uh, and that's also why I do journalism because you can make positive change somehow in some way, um, much easier than certain other roles. Because your job is to make society better, and I think that's why I still want to do it. Because at the end of the day, I just you want to try and make a positive. You want to leave a positive mark on the world. I think. I think that's what everybody really wants to do. Whether they decide to do it or not is like each to their own. But I definitely want to try and make an impact somehow. And that's why I still want to do something within those roles. Do you have a specific impact you want to make? What kind of change you want to make in the world specifically? What kind of change? There's a typical ones like climate change and lowering poverty. But another one that's a bit more specific is 
as a as a person who really loves history at school, I think there should be more diversity. A change to the education system where there's more diversity in what we learn. Because in history, you learn about Europe and that's about it. And then you have one month of Black History Month and they only really constrain African history to one month, which I think is wrong. And then everybody, the whole, the rest of the world's history doesn't exist. <laughs> and I think that leads to a lot more problems society, in a society sense, because there's a lack of understanding of other people's history. And that's why you have so many issues, I think, with um, equality and racism, because there's no understanding of other people's cultures and history. Diversity in sort of historical education. So you want, let me just get this straight. So you would rather have more topics about history sort of a, a wider blanket let's just Across, say. yeah yeah because even with world war Two, even though it's like well it was a whole world war you only focus on europe really and you mention the the atrocities of hiroshima and nagasaki and then pearl harbor but that's only like briefly mentioned and that's the only bit that people know of of other like what happened in asia during the war that's the only bit people know, but there's so much more that happened. And the aftermath of it, nobody really knows about it from my perspective, from like in, in the West, because you don't learn about it. Yeah, so I, th- I feel like there's definitely needs to be some sort of diversity along history. Yeah, just to extend on that point, I'm not sure about you, but you know, obviously we both have heritage from Hong Kong. That's correct, right? Yeah. Growing up, I never learned the World War II perspective from Hong Kong. Neither did I. No, no. nothing about um, it. I learned more when I found out about more of my family's. How, how, like, um, like my great grandfather was a prisoner of war for the Japanese when he was fighting, and hearing that story was shocking because he somehow survived a firing squad and came back alive. But you never hear these stories from Asia, and I never really understood or even had any inkling of or knowledge of what happened over there until reasonably recently and even now i have a very limited knowledge do you that's 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 so fascinating do you know how he escaped did he tell you no i mean i never met him but i like my mom told me about it because her grandmother told me told her and all they know is that he was lined up they took the shots and somehow the bullets missed him but he watched all these friends just die and then they just let him go and then he was released and he was obviously never the same and i don't think he lived much longer after that, maybe a few more years, I think, after that. And then it's a f- crazy story, one that I never fully understand, but definitely something that's one to tell. <laughs> yes, yeah. Uh, like, like you said, you know, a, a, an experience like that will change you forever. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's quite, I don't even want to imagine what it was like. <laughs> For... Uh, my research on you, you told me that you know you had interest in going to war-torn places to not necessarily you know report on military conflicts and politics, but to focus more on the social aspects and the social consequences of war. Can you tell us more about that? Where did this interest come from? I mean, again, since everything stems from history, but like when you learn about history, you learn about well the war and battles that happened, and obviously you hear about how people were affected, but it's only in the aspect of, oh, this battle happened and this many innocent people died. You never hear individual stories. And even in the news, you get glimpses here and there, but you never really hear the, the experiences of the people that don't even want 
war or don't they're not even trying to fight they just want to live and survive and hearing their stories because i can never imagine what it was like what it would be like to live in a place that every day you're thinking are you going to make it and hearing how they survive like and how they carry on because it's 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 such a dark time to be in it's amazing to see how these people carry on and carry on trying to look after their families and making a living somehow and also like the stories that you hear I want to hear more I want to make more stories about migrants because you always hear oh yeah these this this many migrants are coming over the borders but you never hear the individual stories of why um, and how they do it and what the journey was like because I heard a couple stories from some of my mum's friends they were from uh, Vietnam and they were they were refugees and they were quite young so they don't remember a lot of it but they do remember bits and it seems like a terrible time and I just want I think I feel like people should hear those stories more often that's right I mean especially the reporting the British reporting on migrants is quite they sort of omit backstory the context of why these people are leaving in the first place almost dehumanize them and just see them as oh they're coming over here and they're not supposed to yeah where instead of uh these people are coming here in desperation they don't want to be here they have to find somewhere else it's like they're forced into it not it's not of their own free will a lot of the time exactly and i also think you know the inverse if a war broke out here you would expect a lot of people to to flee this place not because they want to but because they have to no it's natural because it's fight or flight you, you either stay and risk death or you leave for a more secure life especially if you have young children it's like what other option do you have apart from finding some way to somewhere safer which happens to be here in lots of europe and america and other places like that because i also you know i haven't really thought that far but i've also had interest in reporters who report on war-torn areas um both politics and social and i sort of i put the hypothetical question to my parents you know um, what would you do if I went to these places? And just their look alone was enough to tell me that they didn't want me to go. <laughs> they didn't have to say any anything, just gave me a look to say, you know, um, do you have to, really? Um, and I kind of guess it's obviously because they don't want their son to... Yeah, to risk, be in danger. In danger, yeah. to risk their lives um, reporting the story. Have you told your parents about this interest? I've brought it up. I can't quite remember their response, but... I think my mom's like going, really? You sure about that? <laughs> <laughs> Are you sure? Just make sure. Yeah, yeah. But I feel like as long as as long as I am safe, I think they'd be okay with it. I think because there's a lot of precautions to go in to ensure the safety. So okay, I just want to move on to to the cultural identity. And speaking of conflict, have you ever had an identity conflict? You know, you're not you're internally debating whether you're Chinese, you're British, or you're British-born Chinese, and how that affects you personally. Have you had that conflict? Definitely. Definitely. I think, if I look back, I think I've always kind of had it, but it's always in the back of my mind. And it's only now that it's like I've really decided to take a real deep look at it. Because I feel like during most of my school time, because even from like primary school, I'm like the only Chinese kid. So I know, I knew straight away I'm, I'm different and I'm slightly outcasted in some way because I just look completely different. And people say comments, even from like primary school, you say, they say comments. So you, I think I tried to 
accommodate to other people and I feel like I almost tried to make myself more British and almost more of a, a white person and trying to reject being Chinese and it's only recently I've been like wait but I'm not that I'm Chinese I have to accept that and embrace that because I always just have this like joke where I go I wouldn't wear that I'd look too Asian the Asian fashion and it's like I was just completely rejecting it purely for the sake of I think it's more of a survival tactic to like to get away from any kind of backlash just because I'm of my color of my skin and it's kind of like yeah and it's only now I've really looked at it like, that's wrong because not only that I used people would say racist jokes and because I'm the only Chinese kid there there's no one to back me up uh, no one there to say no one there to support me because nobody really cared or understood the consequences behind those words so I ended up just joining in so it's like it's almost like oh yeah you're not going to affect me it, your words don't affect me in fact I'll, I can joke about it too I did that throughout all my all school life and it's only now I've only literally as I'm hitting it as I've hit year 13 I was like yeah I'm going to stop that now because it does affect me and you can tell because it's only like now I've started like dressing the way I want talking the way I want and being more trying to be my more myself instead of this kind of um, masked person I guess in a sense and kind of coming to terms with that's a bit confusing because especially amongst peers and friends because for so long I made all these jokes and people thought it was okay and I just suddenly flip around and say no it's not okay people get a bit confused and go wait but you said it was fine before it's like yeah but it's not fine now because I have a different perspective and it's been a tricky road but slowly making my way through I think yeah that's such a good point that you made when people thought you know oh you said it was fine before but now you're saying it's not okay what you know what kind of sort of flimsy flimsy attitude do you have but it's they don't understand that you know when you're growing up you're just trying to do it to fit in as you said it's a survival mechanism it's a defense mechanism and they don't understand people grow people's morals and ethics they they grow as they mature do you regret how you push your Chinese side away at all now definitely definitely because now I feel like I'm more disconnected from my heritage than I should be because now I'm in this weird limbo where I'm not I, in a sense I'm not Chinese because I've been brought up here I have western views I do have eastern views as well but I have a lot of western views as well and I've spent so much time fitting in with British people and, and like and that aspect and rejecting Chinese that I've drawn so far away that I'm not Chinese but then to everybody else I'm Chinese because obviously my skin colour and the way I look, obviously I'm Chinese. So I'm never going to fit in with white people or the British community and never really going to properly fit in with the Chinese community. So I kind of stuck in this weird middle ground where I'm like, okay, where do I fit in on, in on, in on this? And it's been a tricky debate in my head. In your experience, have you found the place where you could fit in and be your authentic self? Have you found that place? Definitely. Um, like I do have some Chinese friends that I feel very comfortable around. But and recently, like over like between year twelve and year thirteen, it was like my sixth form years, I found people and like more uh, and groups of people where I can be more myself and like work on being myself to be fair. Not being quite myself, but like working towards that with these with these friends that I feel like I'm more connected to than I've ever been with previous friends, I think. I think that's a crucial part of it all, just having that group that you can grow in and 
have support and go to for advice and stuff. Absolutely, yeah. I think a good, a very strong support network is um, not only good for that development, but uh, good for your mental health. Because when you're constantly going against the grain in terms of culture and ethnicity, you internalize the thought that there's something wrong with you, that you're not normal. As I said, you're you're against the grain. You don't fit in. Uh, you don't look. You're neither the, here nor there. So it's you're like... neither here nor there. You feel so confused and. But in a way, that's good because it gives you. I think it gives you a unique perspective as well. It gives you a very unique perspective. It does. Yeah. Quite traditionally, I've very, I can have very Asian and Chinese eth- uh, morals and ideas, but when I go to school, I can, I've I've learned many lots of Western ideas and views, and you can kind of see the differences and similarities. And yeah, I think you have a wider perspective. I think. Yeah. Or you can, if I, you accept it. You can. You can. <laughs> hybridize the Eastern and Western values to create this something new and something very personal. But yeah, just to add on to your point, I, f- I feel like I found sort of a belonging with people who feel exactly the same thing, but not necessarily from a Chinese background, but just anyone who feels a sense of disconnect with the majority culture and people who, who's, who experience this internal debate of who they are. Which I think a lot of people do have, but don't talk about. So when you do find those people who are willing to talk about it, you end up just supporting each other and helping each other get through it. Because I know with, with um, my friend, group, friend groups now, they're really into Asian culture and want to learn more. So like we do these things where we, like, we, cook, well, we cook for each other and like I've cooked Chinese meals for them. And it's like they, they, they learn how to use chopsticks and they try and learn all the etiquette. And it's like it helps me come out of my shell and be more like, well, be more Chinese and not feel so sheltered or, or, or putting up walls of my identity, I think. I think when you're, when you're in that environment, you know, the people there, they're there not to attack you or, or, or you know, discriminate against you. And so you, you sort of let your guard down and you, you feel less anxious about having to, as you said, put on survival mechanisms and defense mechanisms. But, you know, you could just be happy sharing your culture. And I think that's great. It's definitely something that's... I'm really lucky to have, I think, because I don't think everybody gets that. But I'm grateful to have the friends that I have that are very supportive. I think I'm quite lucky. Besides cultural and ethnic sort of elements, because you're British Chinese, let's, let's throw that aside for a second. What would you say your identity is made up of? What values and principles do you hold dear to your heart? I think I definitely hold a lot of the Chinese values quite highly because it's very family orientated, I think, with... Chinese people, because I find I find that I would like going to like uh, some of my friends' houses. Like for example, I was I found it really confusing when some some fa- some of my friends they never eat with their family, whereas we all eat together because the the meal is like like Chinese a Chinese meal is pretty much a big communal time, and it's the time when you converse and make conversation and you know be together. It's like our time to be together, so it's quite interesting, and I quite I I I hold that quite highly because I feel like at the end of the day that's why family like to say blood is thicker than water you can have friends but they come and go but your family they're always going to be there no matter what those kind of the the, the ethics that we have are more less in with western views they're very individualist it's all about what can make me happy what can make what benefits me whereas with a lot of Asian cultures it's more about well what can benefit the community what can benefit my family my siblings, my friends, and you know the wider community again, and I feel like those kind of values I, I I really try and uphold. But then, like 
I understand Western views as well because you do have to take time for yourself and you can't be there for other people if you're not taking care of yourself and doing things that benefit you. So I feel like a good mix of the two works well, I think. We can hope to see when you become a, an MP or PM, you can think about this communal, you know, bring in your Eastern values and think about the community. Yeah. I look forward to that. I think, yeah, something that needs to happen. I think politics have become too disconnected with uh, society, I think. <laughs> Hopefully you're the guy to, to bridge that, to bridge that Maybe. gap. Maybe. <laughs> Be something to strive for. Yeah. Just a final question. Do you have any personal goals, however small or big, that you think is, is important to achieve before you die? I think as simple as it is, it's just to be content and happy with what I've done, no matter what it was, like, to just feel like I've, I've done what I, everything I could in that time. I think that's something I definitely want to feel and feel like have a sense of achievement there. And I definitely, like I said before, one of the things I really want to do is make a positive impact on not just maybe, no matter how of a small of a scale or how big of a scale, just make a, some sort of positive change to either someone or a group or a community's um, lives and to just explore the world and gain perspectives from all sorts, from all walks of life. Because that's something I've always been fascinated by was the way people think and how they can differ. No matter how wrong or right you may think they are, it's still what they believe and it's something to explore. Well, thank you very much. And I uh, thank you for your time and I look forward to see you grow over the next few years. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's been, it's been fun. My pleasure. So that is the end of episode 10. It's so great to hear Carl be so clear in the direction he wants to go in. His open-mindedness and maturity when dealing with the potential consequences of his dreams is something to be admired. And whatever he does, I know that he will do it well with clarity, drive and purpose. We wish him luck in his next step. Episode 11 is coming out for you next week, so please look out for that. And once again, thanks for listening, and we'll talk next time.